last week. I went to. This is Pete and Dad. What did you do last week, Andy? I'll tell you what I did, John. I went to my friend Neil's 50th birthday party, and Neil surprised me by saying that he was a regular backlisted listener. Right, and he really enjoys listening to Backlisted. I was really chuffed, right? Yeah. So, happy birthday, Neil. He'll, pre- he'll hear this. But he had two specific requests if we, if we were able to help him. He said, John, could you and I stop saying extraordinary? Right? Can we find oh, a new I superlative? I know, it's two? terrible. Okay. It's terrible. He said, I, if I, I hear you say extraordinary again, I'm going to come around your house and deal with you, right? So, it's worse. I, well, I used to say fantastic a lot until Dermot Healy said, don't use that word. Please don't use that. <laughs> Everything is fantastic. I can't promise that. I suspect that in today's episode, the word extraordinary probably will come up. We'll give it a go. The other thing that Neil said, and I... We, it, could, it, get, we could get Matt to, um, you know... Ring cut a, it out. Ring a little bell. Yeah. Put a ring a little or bell. just put in... And uh, the other thing that he said, he said that when he, in the year 2000... Having read rave reviews, he bought a novel called House of Leaves uh, by Mark Z. Danielski, we think. Danielski, Danielski. You're looking at me. I'm I looking offered you, a suggestion. I'm sorry. Yeah, I think that's... <laughs> okay, the House, of Leaves, the House of Leaves is a very well-reviewed novel, experimental novel. And uh, so he, he bought it in 2000 when it was published and he couldn't get on with it. And then he came to see me do uh, my talk, Read Yourself Fitter, in which I try and uh, motivate people to read books they've always meant to read. And it just didn't work. The magic didn't work. He wasn't able to get on with it. And he said, I'm 50. I'm going to read this sodding book. Do any of your listeners have tips about how to tackle it? So if anyone listening to this has read House of Leaves by Mark Danielski, they can tweet us through the backlisted site or they can get us on Facebook or or you can tweet Neil at Sargi06 S-A-R-G-I-E 06 and copy backlisted in right S-A-R-G-I-E 06 if you can offer any reader's advice on House of Leaves he and we would be very grateful that is a public service I'm impressed we like to help our listeners on a case-by-case basis. <laughs> so, uh, oh, so well, that's, I've done that public service. Excellent. Now. That's probably... Should we kick on? Yes, go on. Hello, and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. We're gathered cosily around the lichen-covered and slightly spooky kitchen table in the underground cavern of our sponsors, Unbound, <laughs> the website which brings authors and readers together to create something, frankly, special. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And joining us around the table, and this is becoming a habit, are not one but two special guests. SF Said is the award-winning author of books for readers of all ages, such as the Varjak Poor books uh, about a Mesopotamian warrior cat, and uh, Phoenix, most recently Phoenix, which was described by The Guardian as a space epic. And I have to say to SF, hello SF. Hello Andy. Uh, SF and I have known one another for approximately 25 years. No way, I didn't know that. Yeah, so since the 1990s. And uh, SF, tell Batlisted listeners uh, what you used to call me, what my nickname was in the 1990s. Well, in the early 90s, which is of course a very remote historical period, as far away from us now as the Romans. Uh, (laughs) uh, And he was known as Mr Pink. Mr Pink. Because he looked like Steve Buscemi in Reservoir Dogs. (laughs) When Reservoir Dogs came out, he had like a little beard. I had a little goatee beard. And this this is absolutely true. For about three to six months, I could not walk down the street 
in London without, without people... somebody coming up to me and going, you're... So goatees you, were you're just not... not... The, are you the guy from... Yeah. Or, or, it used to happen on buses. <laughs> because you wore... Yeah, I'm on a bus. Because you wore a suit and tie. Yeah. Yeah. I'm researching yeah, yeah. the life of a bitter bookseller. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I was in... I don't tell you this, SF. I was in the Sainsbury's where I live with a terrible hangover. And I was buying, like, meal for one in a box. <laughs> and, oh. the, and the lady at the checkout went... Sorry, love, you don't, you don't mind me asking, do you? Are you, are you him? I went, no, I'm really not, I'm not. And she went, she went, she went, no, I thought you weren't, but everyone else here thinks you are. <laughs> That's brilliant. Well, our other guest making a second appearance on Backlisted is the writer and author Erica Wagner, whose book chief engineer about Washington Roebling, the man who built the Brooklyn Bridge, is out later this year. And I think we've known each other for 20 years. I believe we have. Um, I be- but we don't yet have any nicknames. No, we've managed to. We'll have to work on that. <laughs> Welcome back, Erica. Thanks for coming in again. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, the book that SF and Erica have come in to talk about is Red Shift by Alan Garner. Now, I'm just going to say here that we have actually assembled an expert panel because <laughs> my colleague John Mitchinson knows Alan Garner and has published Alan Garner, and Erica has edited a volume for Unbound called First Light of people paying tribute to Alan Garner, and, and SF knows, and knows is, well. a, is a, a, a top fantasy author who is a huge fan of Alan Garner and whose work is influenced by Alan Garner. And you've also got me, (laughs) who until a month ago had read nothing by Alan Garner. But fortunately, as we know, the public have had enough of experts. So so you're fine. So you're fine. It's my opinions. Uh, The man, fresh one. The man, Michael Goat. It's been said before. Thanks. The man on the (laughs) Wichtable omnibus. Now, Mr. (laughs) Goat. Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, we'll be looking for your uh, startling, uh, startling <laughs> in, your, your insights into the work of one of our greatest living writers in a moment. But first, this some housekeeping. If you manage to get to the end of these podcasts, you'll be aware that we point you in the direction of our Facebook page and also our iTunes presence. Some of you, in fact, rather more of you than we expected, because we haven't been checking quite as regularly as we ought to, <laughs> have been so kind as to post stuff on them. So we wanted to thank Denise Fowler. Anne Murphy and Rosie Clark, who've left us very kind messages about the Georgette Hire show uh, on Facebook. And Nigel Bailey, who, as well as listening to A State of Denmark, the Derek Raymond book we did a few podcasts ago, was also given a copy of Andy's The Year of Reading Dangerously by his wife as a birthday present. Oh, oh dear. <laughs> no feedback I... so far, but I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure he's loving it. Oh, th- thank you very much, Nigel and Mrs. Nigel. That's very kind of you. Uh, we'd also like to thank E.E. E. Leach, Richard Inham and Book Nibbler, amongst others, for their very kind uh, reviews on iTunes. Uh, we'd particularly like to thank Hughes Books. Hughes Books, worryingly accurate, when he describes Batlisted as uh, men with clearly far too much time on their hands select an old book every fortnight and then infuse at length while drinking coffee and making obscure references to the fall. <laughs> You know, as SF will... That's the band uh, rather than the biblical... That's that's basically hanging out with Andy Miller for 25 years. (laughs) That's that's your life, that is. (laughs) So so, uh, I don't know whether Hugh actually works at Unbound, but if you do, well... Somebody also said you had the best dirty laugh they'd ever heard, Andy. I I can't remember who that was. Connoisseur of the dirty laugh. But John, 
That or by the by, of this self-regarding nonsense, what have you been reading this well, week? I've, I've been reading, uh, rather unexpectedly, I, I find, a book called Brave New Weed, Adventures into the Uncharted World of Cannabis by Joe Dolce. And the reason I've been not reading that it... Joe Dolce. No, not shut up your face, Joe Dolce, no, but Joe Dolce, who magazine editor in New York, and uh, until recently partner of Jonathan Burnham, a publisher, uh, who has a fantastic idea for a book, which isn't this one. But I was reading it because I wanted some background, because they're, they're connected. And I, it's just a brilliant bit of non-fiction about a subject I knew, apart from the obvious, you know, being at university and never inhaling like Bill Clinton, <laughs> I knew next to nothing, yeah. but it's fascinating, it's a fascinating story of a plant that has been with us for, for thousands and thousands of years and has had an important role to play in all kinds of civilizations. but what he really does is gives you a, uh, an up-to-date what's happening, medical marijuana, what's happening about the legalisation in the States. Yeah. He goes to talk to growers, he talks to users, he talks to people that comes lauded with praise from people like Barbara Ehrenreich. It's a great read. It's fascinating. It makes the case so absolutely and completely brilliantly for the decriminalising of it. Does it? Yeah, I was going to um, ask And I, it's a, it, again, I, I'm, I would, I'm, I'm, I'm being quick because we've got so much to talk about with Alan Garner, but if you wanted a book which intelligently explored how do you have substances that expand consciousness and how do you manage that and how do you how do you market it how do you you know he's not a stoner that's the thing he's this is not coming from the yeah, position yeah. Of, of special pleading he's a genuinely going out there and trying to understand and it, i have to say some of the new product and the, the the new delivery systems shall we call it sound extraordinary i mean it made me want to um, okay. oh, oh God. <laughs> That's one. Most, oh yeah, interesting. Uh, whatever, uh, remarkable. No, oh, that's an even worse word. Uh, <laughs> what was I going to say? Oh, that's right. Andy, what have you been reading? Uh, what have I been reading this week? So I've been reading this week the personal memoir and nature writing work. Alan Partridge it's Nomad. Like work of psychogeography. It is a work of psychogeography. <laughs> it, it manages to actually, you know what's so interesting? It brings together the worlds of Ian Sinclair and Robert McFarlane <laughs> in a hitherto unimagined way. <laughs> it's a book called Alan Partridge Nomad. It's by a guy called Alan Partridge, who is a radio DJ in Norwich. And I listened to it on the audiobook, and they've let him read his own audiobook. And we've just, got, we've just got a clip here of... Um, this is Alan Partridge reading from uh, Alan Partridge's Nomad. I think this will give you a flavour of it. Prologue. What I talk about when I talk about rambling. Poomph. A foot is dolloped onto the ground. In under a second it is load-bearing, locking in place to become a willing pivot for the body as a whole. It accepts the load dutifully, bending a little at the knee in a small act of genuflexion. Above it, a roll of the hips tells the trailing leg to scramble, and it responds by hoisting itself aloft and catapulting its cargo, the other foot, forwards. This foot reaches out and finds land, poomph. Then it too locks in place and takes the weight of its owner before silently passing the centre of gravity back to its counterpart like an Olympic torch made of physics. This transaction is repeated back and forth, back and forth, and it's soon clear that this tandem act is propelling the whole unit forwards in fluid locomotion. What I've just described might sound complex, but it's not a newly invented dance or a corporate team-building activity. It's something we all do every single day. Give up? I'm talking about walking, because this book is about walking. Yes, walking. Oh, some of you are saying, I don't walk, I'm not a walker. Oh, really? Then how did you get to the bathroom for your morning toilet? How did you make it from your house to your car? 
How did you get from the door of the newsagents to the freezer where they keep the magnums? Magna. Perhaps you slithered there. Or was it teleportation? No, you walked, mate. Accept it, because we all walk. All of us. Footnote, with some exceptions. <laughs> so, so, okay, so basically, I read this because I absolutely love... When Alan Partridge's autobiography, I, Partridge, came out a few years ago. Amazing. Have you read it? I have. It's a great yes, and I've listened to it as well. God, the, the, so the audiobook is the greatest audiobook yes. of all time, right? Have you have you heard yes, it? Yeah, indeed. yeah. And my okay. son especially would concur with and, this. And the same thing is happening in uh, Nomad, where... where it's sort of you've got. It's first of all, it's really well written. It's really funny that um, Neil Gibbons and Rob Gibbons, the brothers who've been writing for Partridge for the last ten years, they write all this stuff with Coogan editing and Coogan contributing. It's so good in terms of how it plays on the page. But then when Coogan perform, Steve Coogan performs it. He doesn't just read it in his Alan Partridge voice. He does it in what I call his Alan reading voice. Yeah. Right, that he's doing a kind of as though this is the thing. I, I'm, it's a proper no, it's, book, it's and I have to deliver appreciation. it. Appreciation. I have to deliver it properly. Did you see the advert where it was? It was just brilliant. In where he even goes into you know in P and E. Yeah. <laughs> available. He's, he's got the nuances are just brilliantly done, and the, the cover is a thing of beauty. He's, he's got. Is it one of the, the, the sort of the, the jalaba kind of thing around his neck? Yeah, and he's yeah. looking at and it. Just says nomad, like a sort of yeah. vesture. So what I loved about it is, first of all, it's really it's a brilliant performance. It's not just a reading; it's a performance. But the other thing that I loved about it is, you know, this is a thing we've talked about a few times. We talked about it with um, uh, 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 Joel and Jason when they came in to talk about the Ladybird books and about Bert Feg. That often, <clears throat> actually, funny writing doesn't get a fair crack of the whip. Critically, that Nomad got, uh, I believe, one broadsheet review. review yeah. Sam Leith reviewed it, gave it a great review. It's a, and, but it deserved to be reviewed widely as a really funny book. And it made me think that quite often literary fiction, it can be all sorts of things, but it, it shies away from being funny. It, you know, it can be witty and it can be uh, ironic. And I, it made me think about when you see on book jackets descriptions of how funny a book is. Okay. Right, and I, so I'm just going to go through a few of these and, and explain them for listeners. Wickedly ironic, <laughs> not funny. <Yeah. laughs> Delightfully irreverent, yeah. not, not funny. funny. <laughs> Deliciously witty, not really funny. Not funny. <laughs> Gleeful satire, not funny. <laughs> Laugh out loud funny, mildly amusing. <laughs> <laughs> so well, the point with this book is this book is properly funny really I kept funny. having to stop while I was listening to it to laugh at it so I didn't miss the next bit that I was think, going to be don't funny don't you think that it's the problem is that a lot of comedy a lot of comedy there's nothing worse than aiming for funny and not getting it I mean there's so much stuff yeah. that's so weedy and just doesn't I mean f- you know for every well it's really hard it is to really. do really well yeah. it just is and I think it's because we laugh and laughing is pleasurable and easy we don't think about how hard. You know, it's the same reason why Jack Lemmon never won the Oscar for Best Actor in a Comedy Film, although he was a great actor and a great comedian. He was both yeah. those things. Because right. it's funny, so it can't be serious. I mean, we, right. We've done, to my certain memory, only two authors that I would say were pro- properly comic, Martin Amos. 
I mean, the information is a properly funny yes. book. And I think Muriel Spark is a yeah. genius. Her comic timing and writing is spot on. But there are not many of them. But what I guess what I'm saying as well is the, is the books that are produced for the Christmas market, because that's when most members of the public will buy them, yeah. lest we forget, it, it, they are often, not always, sometimes they don't work at all, but when they're really great like this is, it kind of gets that, shunted off to the humour section of the bookshop and, and, which is ridiculous, and never gets appraised as it should be. I think that's something it perhaps shares with children's literature, which is very seldom taken seriously yeah, yeah. in those kinds of venues and is often presented in newspapers when it is presented as, here's a Christmas present, yeah. where in fact you could be looking at a life-changing work of literature. You should mention this, SF, because you're running a campaign, aren't you, at the moment? I am. It's called Cover Kids Books. Uh, on Twitter, the hashtag is Cover Kids Books. Uh, and it's, it's all about this, that children's literature is routinely underrepresented in the media. 3% of uh, review space in national newspapers goes to children's books, which account for 33% of the UK market. Amazing. How Did is that possible? When you were uh, lit out at the Times, was that, was, the kind of, was that a pressure you felt? I mean, how do you cover it properly? Do you well, I like to think that we always covered it properly. Yeah. I was fortunate most of my tenure at the Times, I think all of my tenure at the Times, uh, to have a really wonderful reviewer of children's books, Amanda Craig, yeah. Yeah, who is a great champion of children's books, and she was also someone, she was effectively my children's books editor. Um, not always, but more often than not, she would come to me saying, there's this author you've probably never heard of <laughs> called Philip Pullman. I think his next <laughs> yeah. book is going to be really big. <clears throat> yeah. She had a wonderful eye, and she wrote for me every week. So I think we did yeah, yeah, cover yeah. them um, well, but absolutely, they go into, they were still in a separate slot. It wasn't just part of literature. We'll pick this up again after some marvellously witty and interesting adverts. Maybe we should go get into a discussion of uh, what the TLS called the most difficult book ever published on a children's list. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, we're talking Red about... Red Shift by Alan Garner. Red Shift by Alan Garner. So... SF, you and I had talked about um, doing Alan Garner here on Backlisted, and it was your decision to uh, focus on Redshift. When did you first read Redshift, or when did you first encounter Redshift? Well, I have to say, I encountered Redshift, along with a, a lot of Alan Garner books, in childhood, but I, I didn't read them. When I was a child, I was... Uh, a horrible uh, little pretentious child who thought children's literature or anything relating to childhood was beneath me. Uh, and I wanted to read Voltaire and You, you were like that. I was like that, uh, as you all remember. Uh, I do. Then uh, in university, uh, along with some friends, uh, I discovered that the children's literature I'd been looking down on uh, actually was the place where the most exciting writing I could imagine was taking place. Far, far more sophisticated and rich and meaningful than anything I could find on a Booker Prize list at the time. And people were recommending to me at the time writers like Alan Garner, Ursula Le Guin, Susan Cooper, none of whom I'd read as a kid, yeah. which I now look back on with horror. Like, what, what did I miss out on? Like, I had, a, I had a terribly deprived childhood in that way. But when I finally came to read uh, Garner's work, 
Well, my first reaction was uh, slightly baffled. Uh, I think the owl service was the first one, and I reached the end of the owl service and thought, uh, what was that all about? I didn't the owl service is the book that precedes Redshift and one right. Connie, 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 right? and the Guardian yeah, Children's Fiction Awards. And like Redshift yeah. was adapted for TV in, uh, right. in a version that many people remember. Yeah. Um, so, yes, yeah, so you, you read The Owl Service. The Owl Service, I, I enjoyed it word by word, line by line, but I had no idea really what it all added up to when, when I got to the end of it. And then I thought, OK, well, that's Alan Garner done. And, uh, <laughs> and then, and then uh, when Boneland was published, I think in 2012, maybe? Yeah, that's right. Uh, Ursula Le Guin wrote an amazing review of it uh, in The Guardian. Uh, where she described it as something no other author could give us. Uh, but she suggested you would have had to have read The Weird Stone of Brisingerman and The mm-hmm. Moon of Gomrath first. So I thought, OK, I, I want to do that. And I, I did. I, I read those books. I, I enjoyed them very much. And then I read Boneland and it just blew my head off. I thought it was possibly the most extraordinary novel I'd ever read. Um, I then thought, well, I have to read the rest of this Alan Garner now. And so it was, I worked my way through uh, chronologically, rereading the Owl Service, thinking, my goodness, how did I miss? How did I miss? This is incredible. Uh, And then Redshift, which uh, I I had no problem with at all when I finally read it. It seemed very, very clear to me. I know it is regarded as one of the most difficult books ever written and has probably put a lot of readers off for that reason. But I think there are ways into Garner and perhaps we can talk about that. So I'm going to, I want to ask a similar question to Erica, maybe not about Redshift, but where did you first, when did you first read Alan Garner? Well, I first read Alan Garner as an adult, um, not because I scorned children's books <laughs> as a child. Um, My whole I career is going to make to add, um, But uh, because I grew up in the United States where his name is not very well known. It's still interesting to me that I think children's books, books published for children, cross the Atlantic less well than books for adults. Mm. I think there are huge books, Harry Potter, um, that make their way. But when I came to live in this country, there were books that I grew up with as classics, like E.B. White's books, Mm, mm. Stuart Little, Charlotte's Web, that until there were films made of them, people in this country did not know. Um, But so, I came to Alan Garner as an adult in the late 90s. The Stone Book Quartet was republished Mm. by Flamingo, as a Flamingo classic. And it came to my office. I was literary editor of The Times, I opened the Jiffy Bag, in which it was, saw a book, the Stonebook Quartet, Alan Garner, Flamingo Classic, and with the hubris of relative youth, (laughs) I thought, who is this classic author of whom I've never heard? I started to read it, and I was completely blown away. That's how I discovered Alan Garner, so I didn't read him growing up. And I want to ask John, actually, we've never asked you this about a book that we've done here, when did you first read Alan Garner? Okay, so I was was classic kind of child of the Puffin Club, 60s, I was brought up on any, any, I mean I was obsessed, any new Puffin Post that came out, and Garner was, by the time I was reading in the late 60s, Garner was one of the big stars. So I think the first one I read was was the Weirdstone. And I read them in order. I read Weirdstone and I read 
Moon of Gomrath and I read Elador and I read The Owl Service, which blew me away. And then something remarkable happened when I was in my teens. I read Red Shift, and that was that was the most. It's the most disorienting Adgarner experience I had because it's really quite a complicated book. It's definitely for me the the pivotal book between what you might kind of call early Garner and late Garner. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. definitely when he begins to do things that he hasn't that he hasn't done before, and the triple time scheme. I mean, it's uh, extraordinary. But <laughs> <laughs> it's, <coughs> the there triples, is no other word though. The, it is the triple the triple time scheme is challenging. You know, he mm -hmm. the whole thing about this book is he forces the reader to forge the links. Yes, I, I've, I, well, and when you should, we should ask. You've come to this, yeah, yeah. for the first time. I have no idea. I've been reading Garner all my adult. I know, as you say, I went on. I published Strandloper and Thurs Pitch. I have no idea. Voice that thunders. I have no idea what coming to Garner for the first well, time I'll give as, you a, my, as, an, as an adult reader. I'll would give be you like. my recent uh, experience of it, which is that I had bought a copy of the DVD of Redshift, of which I had never heard. Because uh, it's sort of mentioned it's in a play the same. For today, it, was it? it was a play for today. It was reissued by the BFI, and it's mentioned in the same breath as things like the Wicker Man, Pender's and Fan. Robin Redbreast, and Pender's Fen. So mm. it was very much at the cult TV end of things. I, and I watched it about three or four months ago. I was totally nonplussed by it. <laughs> I, I think I tweeted with a Homer Simpson blank face, just going, <laughs> what, "What? What? No opinion. I couldn't make head nor tail of it." And so when. Um, I found out we were going to read Red Shift. I thought, okay, well, that's fine. I, 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 and I absolutely loved it, but it was almost like a, a second reading. And um, I was saying this week, in a sense, this <laughs> it is challenging, it's quite difficult. It's not unlike one of my favourite books, Under the Volcano by Malcolm Lowry, in which, in which you are, as Lowry would say, you're, you're, and I think I've said on here before, the first reading is merely a preparation for the second reading. And you won't understand it on first reading. You're not meant to understand it on first reading. It's supposed to sink in. And the other thing I must just very quickly say is that I read uh, the Stone Book Quartet uh, 48 hours ago. I got up early on Wednesday morning. And so from about 5 o'clock till 7 o'clock, I read it straight through. I thought it was am amazing, the Stone Book Quartet. Yeah. I mean, I really like Redshift. But, but the Stone Book Quartet, I, I seem to be drawing on so many things. Like, it's, there's bits of sci-fi, bits of Aikenfield, um, bits of, of, of mythology, bits of folk tradition. I just thought it's, it's a it, it, really... It's, but also, as I, there's a quote on the front of this copy of the Stone Book Quartet from the Times, which I reckon you wrote, which say, Erica, which says the Stone Book Quartet has a symphonic quality, unique in fiction. And actually, that's whoever wrote that. If it was you, I don't think it was. I think uh, well, that's from the first. I think that's from the first. But I agree with that. When it that came what's out, holding yes. it together, a bit like Redshift, are is um, it's movements of rhythm and imagery yeah. far Absolutely. more than narrative. It's okay, the so it's, these to me, these books, and I think that that in a way, Stonebook is superficially simple. Yes. In a way that that Redshift is superficially difficult. That what he's doing, they're very similar in what, 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 what he's trying to do. He kind of, it's, and we'll come on to code in a moment, his books are kind of encoded. I mean, what he's doing is, is, is creating these structures which you really have to work to see the patterns. The more you put into it, the more times you read a Garner, 
the more times you see it. There's a brilliant bit from an essay of his, which I, I just read, because it, it's, it's just about precisely this. He says that literature exists at every level of experience. It is inclusive, not exclusive. It embraces, it does not reduce, however simply it is expressed. The purpose of the storyteller is to relate the truth in a manner that is simple, to integrate without reduction, for it is rarely possible to declare a truth as it is, because the universe presents itself as a mystery. We have to find parables, we have to tell stories to unriddle the world. So I've always felt that what yeah. Garner's doing is creating a kind of a riddle that you have to fiddle you have to solve yourself. I, I'm just going to say, I'm going to quickly, because I think we need for listeners who haven't read it, yeah. I just think we, I'm going to read the blurb now, just to put, just to get out there what the book is superficially about. As I've got an edition that was published by, in, by, yeah, Lions, Teen Tracks. Armada Lions. See, I Armada love Teen nice, Tracks. It's got like the worst cover of all time. The worst That's terrible. Cover. So I'm going to read my... I'm going to <laughs> that read might my, be the worst Alan Garner cover I've ever seen. Books, anyway, so I'll read this and then maybe, John, you could read your blurb on the, the far better... Let's just say what it is. It's a far better edition <laughs> published by NYRB, I think. Anyway, here we go. Red Shift is a daring exploration of a contemporary love story cut into by two violent fragments from the past... The result is one of the most profoundly imaginative, strange, controversial and rewardingly demanding novels to have been published in recent years. Brilliant. Ursula Le Guin. Now, I suspect that when that, was, when that went past the marketing department, the phrase rewardingly demanding didn't have the word rewardingly attached to it. <laughs> no, and what's <laughs> even worse than that, the best, what she actually said, OK, Ursula... Who knows the thing? Was a bitter, complex, brilliant book, <laughs> which is which reminds me of that great. I think it was a column to bean quote that that was was was. Which, if I had to, if I, <laughs> if I had to, what was it? Out of a grim sense of duty, it would be this. If I had to name one of these books that I would recommend, it would be out of that I read out of a grim sense of duty. It would be this, and they took out of a grim sense of duty out of the phrase. <laughs> <laughs> I would recommend this book. That's um, hard so here's, here's, the, here's the egghead blurb. Okay? <laughs> In second century Britain, Macy and a gang of fellow deserters from the Roman army hunt and are hunted by deadly local tribes. Fifteen centuries later, during the English Civil War, Thomas Rowley hides from the ruthless troops who have encircled his village. And in contemporary Britain, Tom, a precocious, love-struck, mentally unstable teenager, struggles to cope with the imminent departure for London of his girlfriend, Jan. Three separate stories, three utterly different lives, distant in time, yet strangely linked to a single place, the mysterious looming outcrop known as Maokop, and a single object, the blunt head of a stone axe. All these come together in Alan Garner's extraordinary redshift, a pyrotechnical and deeply moving elaboration on themes of chance and fate, time and eternity, visionary awakening and disruptive madness. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's, that's pretty, pretty good. That's still most SF, could you, will you be brave enough to read us a bit to give people a flavour of, of, I, of the, I will the registry in which this book is um, written? Yeah, I'll, I'll read a bit. There are three sections, three parts. 
This is from the modern part, which I suppose is the 1970s part, which now doesn't look modern at all, <laughs> uh, as opposed to the Roman or the Civil War parts. But this is a part where uh, Tom and Jan, the, the teenage lovers, uh, are meeting in Crewe, uh, which uh, Tom describes as the most romantic city <laughs> they could possibly go to. And they're, going, they're, they're, they're trying to get out of the city at this point. A brisk walk, said Jan. They set off at random. Away from the precinct of terraces became all the town, and the roads were full of noise. This is better, said Jan. They had crossed a railway bridge onto a piece of quiet land between houses. A boy on a bicycle overtook them and disappeared at the opposite corner of the space. There's a way through. The path ran down to another street, but facing them was a break in the terraces. Two gables almost touched. I wonder why they don't, said Tom. There was room to pass, and beyond they came to an open square, backed by houses. Most peculiar. From the square, the path continued, cobbled, and overgrown by hedges that met in a tunnel arch. That's old, said Tom, older than Crewe. The path dropped steeply through silence to a bridge across a river, rising beyond. Each time it met a road, there was a way, beckoning further, along gunnels and entries. If you kept to the streets, you'd never see this, said Tom. It always cuts at right angles, same as the alleys. Sometimes it was as wide as a road, though only children seemed to own it, but even their games were muted. Have you any idea where we are, said Jan? I'm more uneasy about the when. Hmm. I think the thing about this book that really, I love this in books, but I really liked it with here and we mentioned this phrase in relation to Muriel Spark it seems an appropriate time to bring it back you remember John the reviewer of Spark he said Muriel Spark does not suffer the lazy reader <laughs> and, uh, yes. and Alan Garner does not suffer the lazy reader you you have got to be on you have got to pay attention yeah. and if you pay attention what you get back is this incredibly rich stew of ideas and imagery but I think that's why, and having sat next to Alan, as I'm sure John has too, in signing cues and have people come up to him barely able to speak for how strongly mm. his work affected their lives. And I think that's partly because reading and writing, it's always a communion between mm. the reader and the writer. The reader is always working to create the text, but particularly strongly in Garner's work, because just as you say, you really have to go there. But when you make the pictures, when you make that effort, it's so vivid and it becomes your book. I think that's absolutely right. As you say, all books do that. Um, well, Garner says, I've got this little thing from his essay, Hard Cases, a book properly written is an invitation to the reader to enter to join with the writer in a creative act, yeah. the act of reading. No. And it's profoundly democratic. Uh, it allows every single reader to make the book for themselves in their own heads, out of their own stock of experiences. And I think he said in a, a Guardian Q&A uh, a few years ago, if I've done my job anything like right, uh, 
readers should be able to get things out of it that I never have because mm -hmm. I don't have their experiences. And I think that is why people feel so personally invested. The, the response we got yeah, yeah, last yeah. night on Twitter. We should just yeah, mention amazing. this. I, I've got one here. Have you got any there? I've got one here of like one of our listeners, Faye Franklin, hello Faye, said, some people have an hour tune. This was our book. Yeah. A signed copy was my wedding present from the late Mr. F. The place that, that his work occupies in people's... And Jack's... Yeah, blunt, Jack's blunt. Right? Uh, at Live Otherwise. Hello, Jax. Hello, uh, she, she put an extraordinary thread. Amazing. Have a look where she talked about how there were no books at home. There were no books in her local primary school. A new teacher came one day and was horrified. Brought in his own books, starting with the owl service. <laughs> she read that and she just put Game Changer. That was it. Yeah. She was off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so many people, a whole generation, maybe two, three generations now. And I think this is this is the liberating thing about a writer like Alan, because he has. I mean, we should say a little bit about his family have been stonemasons in Cheshire for for, for three hundred years. Uh, he grew up at very working class Cheshire. He went to Manchester Grammar School. He went to Oxford, and then famously stopped his studies at Oxford. Just, he kind of had a had a breakdown. Decided he wanted to leave and and and, and write a book and went and found this extraordinary house with his father's help he managed to buy for £500. This He recognised being Alan, being the precocious child he was, that it was a, a medieval longhouse. He bought it for £500, and he's lived there ever since. And he stayed in this one bit of Cheshire. Yeah. <clears throat> and he's, he's the most extreme example of a writer who, who, who stays in one place, but whose imagination takes him. I think it's worth talking about, and because it has bearing on Redshift, what is in the next field from this yes. extraordinary house. Yes. <laughs> that if you look out of the kitchen window, um, you can see the great Lovell telescope of Jodrell Bank, yeah. it, which anyone, came yeah. into existence at the same time that Alan came to Earth. A red shift, I copied out the, the, the dictionary <laughs> definition of a red shift. Yeah. Redshift in this book means several different things. It means, it, it a, means a red shift. That's the, 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 the red shift happens when light or other electromagnetic radiation from an object is increased in wavelength or shifted to the red end of the spectrum. It's proof of the expansion of the universe moving away. That's so it has that level, away. but also the red shift. There's a shift that one of the characters is wearing, which is stained with blood. Yeah. So it has a... a, a we, we, have, we have a clip, don't we, of... Alan, this is Alan talking about what a writer does. For me, a writer is somebody who lives in their own life, their own investigation of what it's all about. They are their own scientist in their own laboratory, and that laboratory is themselves. The writer is his own laboratory, which is why... However unpleasant he is, and in my experience, a writer is not a very nice human being as an individual. No matter how unpleasant he is, no matter how much he takes out of the rest of his family, and they're the ones who get the caning, because it never ends. Um, my wife and children are, are living with an even bigger child. That's really <laughs> what they have to live with, a big grown-up kid. Uh, the writer takes far more out of himself, but the, that, that, again, is not a hard matter because the compensations are so enormous there you go i mean that that is what you feel like you feel that, that there's 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 never any slack in garda there's never any wasted there's not a single wasted moment 
There's a, a lovely um, quote from that book, The Voice That Thunders, uh, which is Garner's amazing collection of essays and lectures that Philip Pullman quoted in First Light. Uh, I think very interesting that Pullman picks up on this of all the things he could have possibly picked up, uh, where he says, Garner's grandfather, a whitesmith, passed on this kind of wisdom to young Alan. Quote, he uttered two precepts. They are absolutes. The first was, always take as long as the job tells you, because it will be here when you're not, and you don't want folks saying, what fool made this codge? The second was worse. <laughs> if the other fella can do it, let him. That is, seek until you find that within you that is your unique quality, and, having found it, pursue it to the exclusion of all else and without thought of cost. I think those are precepts for any writer to live by. I, I try to. I do my best. I just, I, I, I wanted to say some things because it's really important that the things about this book, if you're looking, there are lots of boxes to tick here. There's, the, there's Tom, the character who's, there are, there are three adolescent males, I think, or close to adolescent males who are connected over time, Macy, Thomas and Tom. They all are to some degree afflicted. Uh, Macy has kind of mad kind of uh, berserk rages where he kills people uh, Thomas has epilepsy and Tom has what's called in the book his rages which are you know and they the way the book is written there are, these are connection points these three characters are connected through time and there's a lot of interesting stuff you could say that Alan's written what's about the, what's the how do they refer to the um, epileptic moments they're referred to as well you don't quite know no. if they are their fits but there are these visions of blue silver blue, yeah. blue and which silver and without for those who haven't read it we don't want spoilers mm. um <laughs> but it sort of comes clear at the very end of the book what this might be what these images of blue silver might be um it was very striking for me rereading the book i hadn't read it um in a while, and it was only on this recent rereading that I saw that blue silver um, having some resonance with my own experience of epilepsy. I have focal epilepsy, mm. and I haven't had seizures in a while, but they have a silvery quality. It's very difficult to describe, but a bluish, silvery scent quality aspect that really chimed uh, wow. with what was in this book. And I'd nev never seen that before. There's, there's the connection all the way through this book about with astronomy. Redshift is a sort of clue in the title, but they, the, uh, Tom and Jan have uh, Delta Orionis that they watch e at 10 o'clock each night is one of the things they do because they're separated. But the whole sense, there's a, an amazing quote from the, the film, that, uh, uh, One Pair of Eyes, that Alan made in 1972, where he says, our emotions are as violent as the stars and won't be denied no matter how hard we try. And his, his definition of violence is really in that interesting. Is fascinating, He's in, right? Good violence is yeah. creation, bad violence is, is destruction. destruction. Yeah. So, but the idea that the stars, that there's this sort of destructive force within us, you know, without going into all the details, but Alan has battled with manic depression throughout most of his adult life. Not long after the Stonebook Quartet, I think he went into his second major bout of that and, and, and stayed in it for a very long time and emerged amazingly with, with Strandloper, a book that took him uh, 12 years to write. And, and he's written two, I think, um, equally extraordinary novels since Thursbitch and Boneland, which is the, the final book in the trilogy that started with Weirdstone. You know, the thing about Redshift, and one of the reasons why it might have received 
um, poor reviews is not just that it's experimental if it was published as a young a book for young people but it's a book about sex and violence yes it is not merely about those things it contains instances of those things there are numerous murders and several rapes in the course of this quote-unquote children's book i mean it's the most violent of his books and the historical bits i think are remarkable i mean to imagine yourself into second century britain band of roman soldiers being kind of, uh, you know, massacring a village. And mass- I mean, I know for, he's, Alan was reading about the My Lai massacre in Vietnam, and there are some connections in, in the dialogue, I suppose, of the Roman soldiers to sort of American GIs. But then I think the, the Civil War section, where the Bartlemy, Bartlemy Church, where there was a massacre in the Civil War, again, something that a lot of people probably don't associate with the Civil War, where we all think it was a sort of benign... This is a war where one in ten English male, m- males died. It's easily the, the, the worst, bloodiest war we've ever had. To do that and then to bring it into a contemporary setting without it feeling cranky and sort of... I mean, it's, it, it's a pretty remarkable technical also, achievement. SF, would somebody write... Could you write this for young people now in this way? Well, that's a huge question. Um, I mean, I think you could view uh, what we now call YA or young adult Mm. literature as uh, coming out of things that Alan was doing. So I could see certainly some young adult authors trying to have a go at a thing like Redshift. I'm just not sure who could pull it off in the way that Alan did. I'm not sure anybody has got close to that level of complexity and harmony in the patterning. To me, that's what makes Garner an extraordinary writer. It's not the subject matter so much. It's It's the patterning. The patterning of words, images, ideas, ideas, It's relationship to to poetry as well. It's prose poetry. It is, absolutely. It really is. It's so intensely patterned, and that that is the great pleasure of it for me, rather than, yeah, there's violence. The violence is part of a pattern that you kind of assemble in your mind, and there's psychic violence as well as physical violence. A sort of better question is, would a book like this be published as a young adult novel? Mm. If you submitted this manuscript to an agent, to a publisher, I don't think it would come out in a young adult imprint, even though quite a lot of the characters are... Yeah. It probably depends on the publisher, but most, most publishers wouldn't. And there is something gloriously uncommercial and not of our age about Alan Garner's entire career, isn't there? Yes. About Redshift particularly. Can the, I, you know. can, I'd like to ask something uh, to you experts. Um, in, with regard to how you feel about, um, again, it's not a spoiler, but the, the final two pages of the novel Redshift by Alan Garner are in code. Um, and <laughs> not only are they in code, I would argue, having found out what the code means, because these days you can just go and look it up on the internet, whereas yeah. when it was published, you couldn't do that. You had to work it out for yourself. And we did. But what's, but what's contained in the code is actually seriously affects how you think about what you've just read. So it's not just a little fun Mas- Kit Williams masquerade style game at the end. Ooh, it's a, yeah. it's a, it's a. <laughs> well, come on. come on. Well, you know, it's a, it's it totally integral to your understanding of the book. And I'm, I, I, I am going to express mild, <laughs> mild. Um, what's the word I want? Annoyance. Yes, I suppose so. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a bit unfair to the reader. Having said 
what Alan says about communing with the reader, it, it seems a bit... Showy off you. Yeah. What do you think? Do you mind it? Do you love it? Do you... I think he never minds if there's like one really high bar <laughs> <laughs> that yeah. only a few people will jump for. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I, what do you think, SF? Do you think it's... I have to say, I, I, the first time I read Redshift, uh, I didn't even attempt to decipher it or find out what it meant. I was kind of fine with the way the book ended yeah. without it. I didn't really need to know. Uh, so I don't think it's essential. Then when I found out, uh, you know, um, yes, it's interesting, um, but it, I think it's, it's what Alan uh, himself refers to as uh, a pousels and thrums. Yeah. Uh, they are what weavers uh, refer to as the, the oddments of thread that were kept and woven for personal use, uh, the oldest of scraps made into other garb. Uh, and Alan regards himself as collecting these pousels and thrums, yeah. uh, the oldest of stories made into other tales. And he's talked about four of these specifically, which were the origins of Redshift, uh, one of which is um, a newspaper article about two lovers who had quarrelled, uh, the boy threw a tape at the girl as he left, a week later killed himself. Uh, only then did she think to play the tape. It was a complete apology, but he said if she didn't care enough to listen to it within a week, he would know that he had ruined everything. Uh, and that was the first thing that started Redshift. So to me, the bit in code at the end is the equivalent of the tape. Um, and that was the starting point for him, I think, of this story. It was the first spot. Yeah, it needed yeah. a few more spots. So to him, it is highly significant because it is where the thing began. Uh, but I don't think you need it as a reader. It the, is the, not other, the other spark is, and this is something he does with all his books, was he st always starts with the last line. And the last line in this case was a, was a bit of uh, graffiti in a, in a, I think, in a railway station, on a railway station wall. And the book is all about trains and shifts and time and, and the blue and silver train. And everything is connected. But the, 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 it, he's, what is it? He says, yeah, um, it was the usual stuff, including one record in chalk of teenage romance written in the form of the ubiquitous mantra, Janet Heathcote and Alan Flask, it is true. Then the sky fell on in me and with it redshift. Someone had come back later and written immediately below the mantra in silver lipstick without punctuation or a capital letter, the cramped single line, not really now, not anymore. That's how my novels arrive. I don't go looking for them. They come looking for me. Mm, yeah. We've sort of, I mean, we've talked about, the, we've talked about violence. We've talk, I, I just wanted to say, I think that the relationship, the Tom-Jan relationship, that was the thing that m most stuck in my head when I was a, when I was a teenager. Um, and it's not unproblematic, is it? I mean, I, I guess rereading it. But it, I think, I just think the dialogue is so, he's a, you know, he, Alan's a big Beckett fan. And I think when you're, when you're reading this, yeah. what, two things. One is it's superficially cinematic. You think, oh, this would be great on a, as, in a film. It wouldn't. It, uh, no. <laughs> the film is okay. I think it does what, some things really yeah, well. Yeah. But what were you saying about SF? I think, I think, I think you, you need um, a filmmaker who will do with yeah. images and mm. sounds what Alan is doing with prose. But and that, is, that was not the case on British television in the 70s, whoever was directing it. it it's, it's, it's very faithful in some ways. Yeah. Like scrads of dialogue are reproduced exactly, but it doesn't really work. It doesn't give you the extraordinary feeling of all this stuff coming together. There is an amazing image in the book uh, that is not... In the, in the film, unfortunately, which I think is an, an image of the book itself, which is where Tom's mother in the modern story is assembling a jigsaw huh. yes. that has three scenes in it. 
uh, and one apparently uh, they're a uh, romantic Cheshire. Yeah. Romantic Cheshire. Cheshire. Yeah, that's right. It's uh, <laughs> legionaries wearing the wrong armor. Yeah. And then there's something with quite a lot of thatch and black and white timbering. Yeah. And he's describing his own story in the jigsaw. In, in the Those jigsaw. are the three things. Um, and, and that is what an Alan Garner book is. It's a jigsaw. Yeah, you have to assemble yeah, in your yeah, head. And I think, I mean, I would say, um, reading this again and not having read it for a while, one thing I found myself thinking was, you need to relax mm. when you're reading it. Yes. You need to Let not strain yeah. for the connections. Uh, don't read the it connections, quickly. Don't yeah. read it quickly. No, definitely. The connections are there, but you don't need, it's not like a jigsaw, in the way that the pieces don't need to fit together exactly right away. I mean, you can just let it go through. They will cohere. And I think the Beckett reference is really interesting because like Beckett, perhaps, a lot of people are a bit intimidated by Alan Garner. And yet, I think Beckett's a really funny writer. Yes. Yeah. And Alan Garner is a really funny some very writer. funny, some really funny Hamlet-y, Hamlet-y humour in this, definitely with Tom and, and Jan. The thing also, which I didn't really get when I was a teenager, is the sexual relationship between Tom and, and Jan, which is troubling because... I mean, without giving too much away, let's just say it's troubling. And none of it is explicit. None of it happens. It all happens mm-hmm. in the pauses, in the gaps. This is and, when it, and although you may or may not like the way, perhaps, uh, I mean, I think, you know, we were talking SF earlier that Tom overreacts maybe to, to the revelation. But I just think technically those scenes are so brilliantly handled. But the other thing we were saying, and I think it book published in 1973, yeah. um, is that... Jan, in those encounters, has a lot of agency. Well, the, the women through each of the... The girl in the, in the, in the Roman period, uh, Madge in the... They are, they are both... They're both objects of veneration, but also they are they're objects of agency, and they are characters of agency, and they save in two cases. It's not clear. I'm still not sure what happens at the end of the contemporary. I'm not sure that... Well, there, is, there isn't an answer, is there? Uh, yeah. You know, you have to supply your own. I, my, my guess is Tom is not really capable of going where Macy and Thomas have gone. Macy and Thomas have both, you could say, forgiven or, or, or transcended uh, the kinds of jealousies that have driven Tom yeah. uh, out of control. Because um, yeah, the girl is definitely pregnant by... She was raped. Uh, so someone who, who isn't Macy. And it's possible that Madge is pregnant by the Venables, other, other Thomas. Who may be a descendant yeah. of the yeah. goddess and the Romans. We don't know. We don't know. We but don't know. There is that possibility that all these characters are their own descendants as well. Yeah. This, this is what I mean about the book being about, like, about sex and violence. It about is. how those things are processed by humans from one generation to Absolutely. another. There's also a brilliant thing I have to say in the... You know, while we, we were talking about the TV adaptation, I have to say, when I watched the TV adaptation, my heart went out to all those people in 1970s Britain who had been at work all day. Come, come, come home, just wanting to relax in front of the TV. and be bombarded with this, what's this thing? There's a brilliant joke in the TV. God bless Playford today. A, yeah, exactly. There's a brilliant joke in the TV um, about uptight attitudes to sex where... where in the caravan where Tom's parents live, where I believe, in fact, she is doing a jigsaw, the mother, in mm. the background, 
on the TV is That's Life. Yes. Right. With Cyril Absolutely. Thingy doing one of his odd odes about funny-shaped yeah. vegetables and <laughs> sex and nudge, nudge. And so the whole, the whole idea of this enclosed, repressed mm. attitude but to sex, where Tom says at one point, do you know what it's been like growing up here yeah. in this caravan? I've been able to hear everything. Yeah, and that's yeah. another thing is that com- modern communication devices, like the, 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 the headphones and the TV, and the, uh, uh, they're, all, they're all about disconnection. I mean, it's, it's, it's such a rich, a rich and complex novel. You know what? <laughs> you know what? It is, Neil, suck it up. It's extraordinary. <laughs> well, I mean, if we, didn't use, if we didn't overuse that word, I think there are, there are very few writers. My own humble opinion is I can't think of an, a, a, a living writer uh, in English uh, that is more remarkable than Garner. I think he is... I think he is uh, absolute in the absolute kind of the fact that he's done exactly what he set out to do. He has total integrity in what he does, and yes. I think uh, I think and uh, Erica would also. He's also. I mean, he's not the gloomy mage of Cheshire that some people might. I mean, he's fantastically. When Alan's on form, he is one of the funniest and most. Um, I mean, most sort of impish. He's very. He can be fantastic company. It's, he's a, but the books are something else. I mean, they are to me high modernist masterpieces to rank alongside the best of Eliot, Ted Hughes, and Beckett. They're not. Um, they're not to be trifled with. I had a very early email exchange with Alan Garner when I first came to know him, uh, and again, fortunately, didn't really know what I was getting into. But I always remember this email I got from him where I must have said something. I don't remember what I said in my email, but I referred to the invention of stories. And his email came back to me all in capital letters. (laughs) (laughs) Two sentences. I don't invent. I find. Hmm. That's good. Yeah. Well, that is what he does. He pulls together these little bits and pieces that would mean nothing to anyone else and makes something enormous out of them. Um, the, the sense of deep time and deep place and deep space in all of Garner's books is, is mind-expanding. And I, I feel it's very, very difficult to talk about a book like Redshift without making it sound a, a little bit off-putting. But I would urge anybody listening to this... Oh, yeah. Uh, I, the nine books, I think, he said recently he regards them all as really one book that's been developing. Yeah. Um, I just read all of them. I mean, you know, they're, they're not long. Uh, you can read an Alan Garner book in a couple of hours, as Andy said he yeah, did. Yeah. Uh, and yes, it can, it can carry on deepening inside you your whole life. So, you know, uh, I wouldn't necessarily start with Redshift if you've never read any Alan Garner. Uh, <laughs> I, I would start with Weirdstone and read all the way through to Bone. I you would know. start with the Stone Book Quartet. Would you? I, I wouldn't, because I think that's, that's almost... Uh, it's the summit of the steeple, you know. I don't know. I think I agree with Erica. I think based on my limited reading. I think reading, for an adult reader, yeah. a reader coming as a grown-up, mm. because it gives you the landscape, it gives you the background, and then yeah. you can read. It definitely that's, does that. That's what I, that's my yeah, yeah. take on it. I think, I, think I, I, I think Weirdstone is a good place to begin, because it's where he began. Yes, and that's you true. You kind of very gradually see the development yes. of the project. Um, but... The key elements are there right at the beginning. Even if the characters, uh, as he says himself, are kind of two-dimensional, the landscape is not. 
it is deeply, deeply yeah, yeah. alive. Audley Edge is absolutely yeah. alive in Weirdstone and, and will be all the way through the whole project. Unfortunately, we're going to have to stop. Um, so I want to thank SF uh, and Erica, Matt Hall, our producer, uh, our sponsors, Unbound. But uh, just a, a little bit of a little a Ghana sign-off. And that's about the top and the bottom of it, the whole beggaring cheese. I've given you a story, not too long and not too short, just the length, same as from you to me. I'd tell you more gladly, but that's as much as I know. See you in a fortnight. I'm Alan Garner. Aha! <laughs> <laughs>